really does feel like it goes from Colorado Facet Factory to the most maritime that there can be. Got out, traversed over to it, and uh, just got a kind of a bad feeling. It's like, ooh, this is, this is actually a pretty big piece of terrain. It looks small, you know, from the helicopter, and it looks small from, you know, when you're a little ways away, but this is like, we're actually, I'm actually entering avalanche terrain right now. Uh, I certainly have less tolerance for trying things multiple times and pushing too hard. Um, I think I still accept a fair amount of risk, but when things become difficult, when there's extra stresses in a day, it's easier for me to just dial it back. This is Mike Welch, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm glad you're here. I hope you had a great summer and you're enjoying some of the cooler temperatures of fall with the anticipation of the upcoming winter. I'm just getting back from a month-long trip to Chile and Argentina. Had a great time down there. Uh, had some awesome skiing, some not-so-awesome skiing and amazing views, killer food, just all around a great time with some awesome people, a few good friends, uh, met some new ones along the way, and got to ski with my beautiful wife, Stephanie, which is always a blast. As you plan your fall, I hope you'll tune into both current and past seasons of the Avalanche Hour podcast to get your head tuned up for your upcoming winter backcountry adventures, whether it's for work or play, tune in to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Again, this season you'll find episodes released three times a month from October through May or June, and those will be released on the 1st and the 15th, and then the third week of every month, hosted not only by myself, but by uh, the group of contributing hosts from around the globe. So, we really look forward to hearing from those other hosts as well uh, for the upcoming episodes. I wanted to mention a few other things for you to think about. It's a great idea to try to fit in at least one regional snow and avalanche workshop this fall. Whether you attend in person or virtually, these are valuable continuing education opportunities as well as a great way to build some community. You can find a schedule of regional snow and avalanche workshops on the American Avalanche Association's website, www.americanavalancheassociation.org. Speaking of the A3, make sure to become a member this season if you aren't already. And if you're a professional or affiliate member, don't forget to go vote for the board of directors in the current election. That election closes on the morning of October 14th, so make sure to Head on over and do that today. 
while you're checking out the website, also make sure to watch the trailer for Buried, a full-length documentary film based on the events and circumstances of the tragic 1982 avalanche at Alpine Meadows, California. I've watched it a couple times. It's a great film that's an honest reflection from the people that were involved. For a limited time, there are screenings in select cities, and you can find your nearest location in Showtimes at buriedfilm.com. We'll be sitting down with the filmmakers and some of the ski patrollers that were involved in the coming weeks, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Additional support for today's episode is provided by Athletic Greens. Back in May, I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens, and it's become a valuable part of my morning routine. It's actually the first thing I do when I wake up. You might ask why I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens. Well, I was kind of tired of taking lots of different supplements, right? Like my routine of taking a probiotic, taking a multivitamin, I don't know, maybe you take five or six supplements in a day. And I was just kind of tired of the hassle of that routine. Since I started taking AG1, I've noticed that I have better gut health, I have more energy, more clarity and focus, and I'm sure that it's supporting my immune system because I get sick less. I start out in the morning just putting one scoop of AG1 in some water, shaking it up, and that gets my hydration kicked off for the day. But it also gives me 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It really starts me off on the right foot. I do feel that I have better focus and clarity if I take the AG1 first thing in the morning. It takes one minute and I am confident that I'm getting vitamins and minerals that I need to keep myself healthy. So right now it's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient routine. It just takes one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. You don't have to take a bunch of different pills. AG1 is going to have your back. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. In this episode, you'll hear an interview with Mike Welch. Mike is the snow safety director at Chugach Powder Guides, as well as a patroller at Alaska Ski Resort and owner and guide at Sundog Ski Guides. Mike and I sat down at the end of CPG's heli ski season last year and reflected on what goes into an operational avalanche forecast. He provides some thoughts on safety margins given a variety of contexts, He gives us a thoughtful recount of a close call and much more. I'm sure you're going to enjoy my conversation with Mike Welch. All right. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for making the time, man. Of course. Yeah. Thank you. It'll be fun. Yeah. I was hoping you could introduce yourself, talk about, um, yeah, just kind of your background, where you grew up, kind of early, early memories of backcountry skiing, um, and snowboarding, I should say. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and some of the roles that you've played within the snow and avalanche community throughout your career. All right. My first skiing experience was at Chad's Peak in Pennsylvania. And as far as I can tell, it no longer exists, talking to all sorts of people from Pennsylvania. Um, if there's any people from Pennsylvania out there that know about Chad's Peak, it'd be sweet to hear about it. But that was where I first skied, um, and it was definitely transformative. We went on school trips to Chad's Peak. I probably did five or six, maybe. Um, this was from Wilmington, Delaware, and I would have been 10, 11, something like that. And at least one time, I it was a little Pomalift T-bar. I rode up and over the person in front of me that fell off. <laughs> and then wiped out at the top and had somebody ride over me um, at one point. So it was pretty memorable. I'm not sure whether that was the first time. That's how my memory thinks of it. But it was really a fun little tiny place. My cousins called it Chad's Pimple. Um, and yeah, that was my first first ski experience. It was really cool. My Uncle Rich uh, bought me a pair of Dina Star Pulsar skis not too long after that or during that experience probably heard me talking about it he was a really cool guy um and uh he got me a pair of uh, green and blue and black dina star skis and i thought they were super cool so those were two really those are my two earliest ski memories for sure um we lived in maine in between uh delaware and alaska for a couple of years and so i went to a place in uh lincoln maine stinking lincoln it was a pulp mill town um, and I remember being, that was the first time I was really cut loose to ski on my own. It was in, uh, Lincoln, Maine. And, uh, my mom would like, if there was a, some sort of in-service when she still had to work, she would usually take me up to the ski area and let me loose on the ski area for the day, which was pretty sweet. And that would have been like 11, 12. Um, and that was super cool. Um, getting cut loose on the ski hill while she was at work. Then she picked me up after work and we'd drive back home. It was like an hour's drive or something from uh, where we lived. What town did you live in Maine? Uh, in Milo, Maine. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Tiny little place. My dad thought he wanted to maybe uh, stop being a pilot and start a, run a sporting goods store. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. But it turns out he really hated retail and got over it pretty quick. <laughs> and became started uh, flying again. And between that and my mom uh, having a physical therapy job that could kind of move anywhere, um, that's how we got out to Alaska. Was uh, um, I think really my dad's love of fishing and my mom's willingness to go just about anywhere for fun. And really, liked, she loved Alaska, I think, more than he did. So you were 13 or 14? 13 yeah. uh, when I arrived in Alaska. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And, uh, yeah, we lived in Soldotna, Alaska, flatlands. Ski behind uh, snowmobiles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was kind of my first powder skiing, I guess, was behind a snowmobile being towed around in like fields around our house in Soldotna. That was fun. That was a good time for sure. But snowmobiles break down a lot. Yeah. I remember that. Um, but uh, then we'd do trips from Soldotna um, up to Alyeska. We started watching ski movies then, and things like that, and really started seeing that there was more. Really got got into it, but still didn't see myself like getting into the ski industry in any way. Honestly, um, I thought that I, I was 
uh, going to college with to get a degree in biology uh-huh. and um, ended up seeing a class in the course schedule. It's called Outdoor Emergency Care. And uh, it turns out it was the, uh, the class that you take to become a ski patroller. And uh, so ended up getting a job through the guy who was teaching the class at Hilltop Ski Area. And uh, he, I got hired right after I, I finished the class in December and got a job in December at Hilltop. And uh, it was a sweet night job. I worked night patrol mostly. And uh, they did night ski until like nine or something like that. Uh-huh. And you could sit up there and study and do all the work runs and stuff too. But, you know, there's a lot of sitting around studying, waiting for something to happen. Right. And uh, Hilltop had a lot of uh, a lot of accidents though too, definitely. It was a good place to learn how to be a ski patroller. So that was like my first ski industry job. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Worked there for three winters. Um, and then the fourth winter, I think I worked a little bit at Hilltop and then mostly at uh, Arctic Valley, if I remember correctly. And uh, that Arctic Valley was the first place that I um, saw avalanche control work and saw that sort of thing. Saw a really big avalanche happen. And uh, that was interesting. That was an eye opener for sure. Right. First avalanche I think I ever saw. Yeah. And then, uh, so throughout that time, did you take a, your first avalanche course or something like that? So, um, my first avalanche course would have been through the National Ski Patrol. And it was like their basic avalanche course. And uh, don't remember a ton from that, honestly. It was pretty early in my career. I learned how to use a beacon and probe um, and things like that. But uh, quickly after that... Um, Got on with Alyeska, and that year they were teaching uh, a, a, their advanced avalanche class through the NSP. And it was, it's still, I don't know what the equivalency is, honestly, but um, that one caught my attention more because I'd seen a few more avalanches and things like that at that point. It definitely got my attention. Um, I knew some basics when I was at Hilltop and Arctic Valley, but uh, very little, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must have worked at several years at hilltop before i had any avalanche training or anything like that there's no nothing no hazard there sure um so what are some of your early memories of kind of venturing uh into the backcountry hmm. I, I definitely remember the first time i stood up on top of a mountain um in alaska it was in hatcher pass um i believe it was uh, uh the top of april bowl somewhere um but i was I had no idea. Didn't have a beacon. Got towed up by, didn't have anything. Got towed up by some friends that were snow machining. They got, they, I got invited along on like a kid's, like a boy's trip. I was, yeah, probably 17 and got towed up to the top of a mountain by some buddies from Sladatna. And I was skiing because I had skis and uh, they all had snowmobiles. So they went and did their thing. And then I just skied back to the, uh, the car um, and hung out. Um, afterwards, but like spent, they, they took me to the pass and then I hiked from the pass mm-hmm. to the top of a mountain and I got to the top of this mountain and looked around. It, uh, definitely impressed me. Yeah. I graduated college, uh-huh. um, and, uh, Alyeska was hiring and I got a job there. Um, and moved to Girdwood and 
Uh, my first year at Alyeska, I definitely learned how to powder ski. <laughs> kind of. Um, but uh, I was definitely a bit of a beater to begin with when it snowed a bunch. Um, but um, through heckling and good mentoring, I learned how to ski okay, um, fairly, or fairly well anyway. And uh, could get down through stuff and, and uh, started doing avalanche control routes. And that was super awesome. Definitely um, getting the responsibility and the thrill um, and everything that goes along with it. Um, that was super fun. Definitely. Living in Girdwood, full eye-opening experience. Yeah. Definitely. In a lot of ways. Yeah. And then at some point you headed down down south to Utah, right? I worked five years at Alaska, um, went on a patrol exchange on year four and to Alta. And really thought that was awesome. Yeah, it was it was a neat place. The skiers were just uh, five calibers above anybody I'd ever seen, most of them. And um, they were saying that the snow was terrible, and I thought it was really excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I was like, wow, this place is great. And I went back to Alaska for a year, did a whole other season. And then the next year, decided to try to get a job at Alta, um, and, but kind of scattergunned a little bit, just if I didn't get a job at Alta, I was trying to get a job maybe somewhere else. Um, and it talked to, uh, or sent, sent emails to all the people in like big and little Conway Canyon and some California resorts and, uh, Mount Rose was, I think the only one that was like maybe other, otherwise interested. Um, it would have been an interesting fork if that had gone that way. But, uh, yeah, Alta said at first they, did, they didn't have a job. And uh, I was like, oh, okay, I'll go to the desert and think about it and see what's going on. It was, oh, it would have been early October probably. So there was some time to figure things out. I could have went back to Alaska, could have went to Mount Rose and spent two or three weeks in the desert. And then they called me up and said, well, we actually have a job opening. And uh, so I went up and did like a second interview. And in the second interview, they said, well, we'll hire you as long as you are willing to live up in the canyon. And I thought, well, that's all I want to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just want to live up in the canyon. So um, I got roomed in the Buckhorn at Alta. And it was like transient ski bomb heaven. Three meals a day cooked for you for, I think, $7.50 at the time or something like that. Uh, and... Um, place to say shower and you when i first my first year there the next year they replaced the collins lift my first year there you could walk about two snowcats width and get right on the lift right out your door to like 15 steps nice yeah the university of alta yeah it was pretty sweet yep and learn and then got definitely my eye opened a whole lot more as to the potential of what can happen with avalanches for sure. Alaska taught me a lot in that respect. Yeah, for sure. As far as like how big things can go. Um, but out to also, you know, taught me different things about different types of snow, you know, persistent weak layers in a different way, especially facets and just a lot of history. I mean, a ton of people that have, you know, been doing it for a really long time. You know, I think it's kind of where modern avalanche control started 
you know, artillery mm-hmm. started there. Um, and, you know, well, I think a lot of things started there. And the, the people that were there when I got there were really only one or maybe two generations separated from them. So they who don't are, know. Who were some of the mentors that you rubbed elbows with in Little Cottonwood during your time there? Um, the first one was Ron Kane. Um, he kind of put me under his wing and put me on the high rustler route at Alta, like right away. He saw me studying maps at the top, I think. I don't know. I came up on a day off and was like sitting underneath the top shack there and he poked his head out. I had the route sheet and he's like, Hey, what's going on? He'd been doing routes for a lot of years at Alta. Um, and was kind of the master of the high traverse. This was like his side job. Uh, but he would, he'd been doing high wrestler for a lot of years. And so he was like the first one. Um, but, uh, Titus case and, um, Howie, Dan Hallett, um, definitely, um, uh, took me under their wing in a big way. They're yeah. really great guys for sure. Yep. Gabe Garcia mm-hmm. and yeah, so many, so many folks, honestly. Um, there's a lot of great folks down there and they all definitely took me under their wing and showed me what they know. And yeah, it was a super great community down there. Yep. Oh, totally. Yep. And then you, you came back to the great white North. I did. Yeah. I came back. Um, I guess for a variety of reasons, I, I wanted to, I mean, Alaska called me, has always kind of called me back in a way. Um, I spent one summer outside river guiding, um, and it called me back the summertime just, you know, is kind of hard to compare with, um, as is the winter, you know, but, uh, I think I had a really great thing going on at Alta and it was easy to, you know, stick around there. Um, but, uh, uh, wanted a shorter season, wanted to make a little bit more money, wanted to try something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, had an opportunity to get on with CPG and, uh, so jumped on that and got, you know, foot right in the door and got to guiding a lot every, you know, uh, right away, which was, you know, kind of rare in the heli industry in some ways. Um, but, uh, got to get right in the mix and that was, that was awesome, you know, and, and I could still part-time patrol early season, you know, in the funnest time of year when the routes are the best, you know, go out on an early season snowpack out on a ski area. And uh, and do some early season ski patrolling and get your trauma going and get you know all sorts of practical practical experience and um, and then go ski guiding okay. for the latter half of the winter. And that was really good. That was almost ten years of like commuting from Alta up to CPG. Maybe not ten, eight for sure. I'd say mm-hmm. bouncing back and forth. So these days you're you're ski patrolling some in the early season at Alaska, and then uh, you're the director of snow safety at Chugach Powder Guides and a, and a lead guide there as well. Um, talk a little bit about your process for avalanche forecasting for CPG for the heli ski operation there. Um, maybe create some context for the listeners here about you know how big of an area we operate in and and kind of the different snow climates that that you're forecasting for. Yeah. You, you certainly hit the nail on the head with that, uh, geographical description. It's a very big area that you forecast for. And so that makes it, um, especially difficult, but almost, uh, in some ways, 
um, easier because you paint it with a really broad brush and uh, throw out your best guess as to what's going on and uh, allow guides to get their feet on the ground and with 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 what a forecaster's best guess is. And then um, it seems like CPG does a good job of allowing guides to figure out what the actual P1 is as well and not just, you know, be painted into a box necessarily. Um, and, you know, so gives guides a lot of uh, ability to think for themselves, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, and within their guide group, the communication is great. So, um, but as far as, as far as avalanche forecasting, the forecasting from zero, you know, feet in elevation in Seward or even zero feet in elevation in Girdwood or 50 feet in elevation, say, um, to, uh, some of the higher parts of the Chugach and, and on a very dry, uh, portion of the Chugach, it, it really does feel like it goes from Colorado facet factory, um, to the most maritime that there can be, which is directly on the ocean. Um, so it's uh, it's interesting. It's really fun, definitely. And uh, getting feedback from the guides is very important in that forecasting. That's a super important part of the forecast. Is um, we have a, a pretty great guide report that allows guides to put in all sorts of information that they find pertinent. Um, and so we use that heavily to create our forecast every morning. Yeah. So I've heard you talk a little bit about kind of the different resolutions of forecast, right? Like a lower resolution forecast in an area that maybe we're in a bit of a, a information vacuum, you know, maybe uh, teams haven't been out there in a while uh, towards, you know, a higher resolution where in an area that we've been operating a little bit more. And so talk a little bit about how you um, convey that resolution forecast to the guides and 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 what they do with that yeah um confidence and resolution are a couple of interesting things in forecasting um they sometimes go hand in hand but um the the resolution to me means how many data points you have how many even if it's just a day traveled even if it's just somebody going skiing on 10 different runs in an area um, that's a lot of information. And um, if you get deeper into data points as far as, you know, ski pole probes, hand pits, test pits, you know, full pits, uh, full pits are really difficult to get out there. You know, you have to have just the right circumstances to do something like that. But uh, uh, the resolution, you gain more resolution with the greater number of data points. And it can be just somebody's feet on the ground. Guides can tell a lot just by putting their feet on the ground. The deeper the issue is, the more difficult that is. But um, if guides are on the ground a lot throughout a, throughout a storm, say, um, or throughout uh, a season, um, they get a better feel for it. The more the more they're just feet on the ground. Yeah. So that that gives us greater resolution, and then anything beyond that is extra for sure. Yeah. And we, we gain quite a bit of information just from flying over areas, right? Like even mm-hmm. if you're not skiing in the zone, just travel to and from your venue for the day. Certainly. You can see um, something that's been completely wrecked by the wind 
And that's probably a good thing once you get new snow. Yeah. You know, you get an area that's just been completely ravaged and you put two feet of new snow on it, it's a lot less likely to cause you a problem than if you see a really shiny slope that has a sun crust all over it or a rain crust and then it gets two feet of snow. Or sometimes you can even see surface ore from the helicopter. Um, you know, you can see that sparkly stuff if you're close enough. And uh, so that's, you, you can totally gain some resolution that way. How many data points would you say kind of come from your weather telemetry around the zone and, and what weight do you put on that, um, you know, versus kind of guide reports from the day before and, and that sort of thing? Um, personally, I take more, um, I, I weight the guides, the guide reports and the guide observations more than telemetry. Um, telemetry is certainly important, um, especially when you haven't been on the ground in a long time. Um, but you know, humans all over the, you know, landscape will give you more information on, you know, small variations in mountain weather, you know, um, numerous times, um, in certain portions of our terrain, we find little refreshes that telemetry never picked up and, you know, six, 10 inches of snow. Um, and that can make a big difference, um, in the skiing. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And the avalanche uh, issues, perhaps, you know, that sure. much snow and wind, you know, could give you a lot of problems. So, yeah. Um, so I, uh, I definitely wait telemetry um, quite a bit when we haven't been out there in a while. Um, but I do think that personally I um, gain more information from guide reports. Yeah. What would you say the biggest challenge is to you? when developing a, an avalanche forecast for the day? Hmm. Biggest challenge is uh, not really knowing what's going on, you know, especially when there's changing weather. You know, I mean, some things are, sometimes it's, there's certain things that are not too difficult when it's blowing, you know, 70 miles an hour. It's pretty easy to, and you're getting precipitation, you know, that's pretty easy. When it's in the, when it's, when the, say the danger rating or the snowfall totals or the wind are kind of in the middle range, I think it's more difficult to know exactly what's happening out there. Um, it, it helps when you're in a more static pattern, obviously, um, as far as, you know, what's your challenge in the morning. Uh, wind is something that I think has thrown me off the most. Um, wind can be pretty subtle and it can definitely be, you know, channeled through localized areas and things like that. Um, and for one reason or another, uh, I think wind has caught me off guard the most in getting the forecast wrong. I have not paid enough attention to what it can do. And, you know, you learn that in Avalanche 101. You know, I think that if we really adhered to all those things that we learned in Avalanche 101, you'd be pretty good most of the time. If you don't break any of those rules and you pay attention to all that stuff in 101 really well, you'll be good most of the time. Um, and yeah, the wind's the one that throws me off guard. And it's just, it, it, it's what messes with me psychologically the most out there too. If it's a windy day, I have the hardest time. I can't, I couldn't explain to you why when it messes with me the most. I disregard it in a forecast uh, more often 
Mm-hmm. Um, not disregarded, I suppose, but uh, uh, it's there's a little bit of that maybe. Mike, what are some ways that just to kind of paint the picture for the listeners here, like that your forecasting differs from a public avalanche forecast? Uh, I think the main thing that um, differs from our forecast at CPG to a public forecast is our really excellent ability to discuss things um, during a meeting every day. Um, And so the forecast is a baseline um, that uh, an experienced person puts out. um, And then we have a whole bunch of other people that can throw in some opinions to um, potentially adjust that, talk about variations that they saw the day before that, you know, um, through any number of human factors, uh, didn't get mentioned in a guide report or didn't get weighted in a guide report or, you know, they didn't say it when we talk about it. But that meeting, I think, is um, and and th- that meeting is a big uh, that's maybe the biggest difference. Uh, but another really big difference that's associated with that is that it's a forecast that's given to a bunch of professionals um, who have been following that forecast, you know, throughout the season. And, uh, and so they have a, a framework to work with there. Right. And I think most operations probably do this these days, but it's really nice at CPG how, um, the forecast is emailed out to all the guides, right? So even on your days off, you can zoom into the morning meeting and, and you have a record of, of that forecast for the day, which I, I, I find super helpful. Yep. Certainly super helpful. And uh, on the forecast, we have a, a, a number of previous oper- you know, previous days uh, listed there. Um, if you uh, want to look up a day a month ago, you can look it up really easily. Um, just, I mean, in the most basic way, you can just look it up in your email train and just be like, what was going on on the you know, 14th of last month? And just go to that email and look it up and see who was where and be like, oh, hey, Paul, what was going on over there? You were there in the 14th. I think that's the last time anyone was there. And uh, so that level of information sharing is really excellent. Yeah. How about information sharing with other operators and entities around the area? I mean, this is a pretty rich environment of, of snow and avalanche professionals. So. Who else are you talking to on a regular basis? Um, we are on a regular basis talking with the folks at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Don't forget to give. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, they're awesome. They, I, I really believe they've saved lives in the time that they've been here. Um, and they sh- they're really great at sharing information and, and really, really... Um, try to share everything with those guys, you know, and anything we see out there that we think is pertinent, we um, bring to their attention mm-hmm. for sure. And it's a really great relationship and they do the same when there's strange things going on, but their information is really broadly. Um, it's out there anyway, so we, we'll get it uh, no matter what, because they, they're really good at disseminating that information for sure. So that's a, a big one. Um, other heli ski operators, definitely. Um, we thank you, Henry Munter, um, general manager of Chugach Powder Guides, uh, for spearheading this. We are um, now sharing, we have a, a Dropbox folder 
that we share with uh, a number of other operators in Alaska. Um, it's available to anybody really uh, that would be in the industry, I would say. Um, and it's uh, it's a slightly more basic form of our ops forecast sheet. Um, it doesn't tell you exactly where we're skiing, folks, but um, it it shares all the avalanche avalanche information. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, that's that's another piece of information that we share with folks. Um, we share with DOT back and forth in the railroad. Um, that's that's the, those are the main players. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Alaska. Oh, certainly, and Alaska. They bounce things back and forth with us as well. Hundred percent. Um, Chugach Electric has a crew that does uh, um, avalanche control for, for those guys, and uh, we definitely they're they're part of the list. And um, the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center also hosts a forecasters roundup every Friday, where local forecasters get together and talk about the different things that they're seeing out there. It's a really great environment to talk about things and see what's going on. And yeah, so that's, cool. that's the general information sharing as I know it in Girdwood. Right. So Mike, talk a little bit about your mindset and your approach um, between doing different jobs, right? Like let's take kind of early season avalanche mitigation at the ski area and then um, entering new terrain for the season heli skiing and then we haven't mentioned this yet but you have a a new ski tour guiding company out here as well sun sun dog ski guides and uh so maybe the third one would be um solo ski tour guiding with maybe three to four clients that you've never met before how does your mindset and your approach to um different terrain uh differ between those three environments or applications as you were saying that, I was thinking about it, and I think backup is probably the biggest difference um, in that um, in those three different environments. Um, in early season ski patrolling, doing avalanche control routes or things like that, um, you have a pretty large and quickly able to respond back, you know, set a backup, you know, very experienced, only experienced people and, um, you know, and a a large number of people that can get there in a hurry. Um, So ski patrolling, you you know, you have have a lot more backup. So that's a big difference between the three. In ski guiding, you're probably in between. You you have some uh, extremely experienced uh, guides um, as backup, but they also have clients, which may be a benefit and may not. You have a helicopter to get right to you quickly, so you actually may be quicker in certain circumstances to get to you if you had a problem. Um, and, and then uh, ski tour guiding, I think the backup is the least, um, and it depends a lot on your clients. And, you know, there's a number of ways to screen people. Um, but uh, in general, it, I think is at least a portion of it is left up to the guide's discretion and the guide's comfort level with uh, checking the people. You know, we'll have basic, we have, you know, basic uh, parameters that, that folks need to uh, 
be able to exhibit to take them in an avalanche train. Then you could take anybody out ski touring. And if you didn't feel comfortable with them, you just wouldn't take them into avalanche terrain mm-hmm. and you'd have a perfectly safe day um, as far as avalanches are concerned anyway. Uh, and that's, that'd be, you know, guide discretion. If you met them and they were taking the stickers off their brand new beacon, um, well, then you take them to, you know, certain places and they would have an amazing day, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you show them the most basic things about ski touring um, and and you go up from there and in order to do, um, you know, big terrain, consequential terrain, um, as a ski tour guide with people, I think you need to get to know them a yeah. bit. And so the first day you ski with somebody, you're probably not going to tee off, you know? Um, and so, and it's because you just don't have the backup. You don't know these people well enough to trust them with your life, you know? Um, so uh, that's that's a that's a guide's dilemma, I think, is especially especially ski tour guiding. Um, if you're going out solo with folks, you know we have uh, certain protocols that protect people uh, and feel pretty good about it. But the backup is a really challenge. You know, that's a big challenge to know who would be potentially digging you up if you got caught in an avalanche. It's a big deal. Um, yeah. So is it fair to say your your margins are a little bit bigger when ski tour guiding, especially solo? Solo ski tour guiding would definitely have, um, you would have, you'd, you would hope to have bigger margins for error. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Which means you would, you know, get into more consequential terrain less frequently. Yeah. Yeah. How about, how about ski guiding out of the helicopter, you know, when you're being pushed by clients and you're dealing with a persistent slab problem, you know, I think it's fair to say that most people that come up to Alaska, and are excited to go heli skiing have some sort of expectation in their mind, whether it's realistic or unrealistic. And conditions um, are what what are given to us. We can't choose those conditions. And so, how do you deal with managing client expectations um, given a, a problematic um, layer within the snowpack, or you know, more of a higher hazard day? Hmm. Managing client expectations in persistence lab problems is difficult, can be difficult. Um, like you said, people come up with, uh, can, can come up with a, a number of different, you know, levels of expectations, some of which are, I want to be in the next ski movie, you know, and some are, you know, I want to ski some steep terrain, you know, and that's, we get it. We like that. But, uh, helping them see the problem for what it is. Um, I have invited people to come check out a pit. If I felt like that, there, if I, you know, had some level of confidence that there was going to be a obvious result, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Hey, come here, check this out. Um, and that can some, especially if people are interested in the snow that can totally bring their level of awareness higher. Um, but not too many people probably are that geeked out on snow and pushing for the bigger stuff. It's usually people that don't know much about snow. Um, and that's harder to, to deal with. That's something that you have to insulate yourself from as a guide. Um, and there's a 
you know, a number of different ways, you know, not caring. It's, you know, being cold or whatnot. I, I think that I like to um, try to show people the best time I can with what we have. And I think a lot of that is having fun yourself. And so if I find ways to have fun, then usually the people will have fun. And if it's jumping off of little tiny things that have very little avalanche hazard on a high hazard day, then let people, I don't generally let people jump off of things, you know, cause it's not, I don't think it's the best thing to do out there. Um, but you know, if you sometimes cliff hucking is safer than going into avalanche terrain. And if people really want to do it and you inform them about it, I think it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the strategies, you know, let them do little slightly more dangerous things. Yeah. Talk to them about things that they like back at home, like their kids. Right. I come home to those guys, right? <laughs> I've said that a few times. That that can be a big eye opener. And and not caring a little bit. Not caring a little bit is probably important too. Caring about, you know, bringing people home safe and not showing them the best time of their life every time they come. That can be dangerous, I think. Yeah, sure. So as heli ski guides, we often ski cut ski runs to open them. Right. I've heard you talk a bit about defensive skiing. I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that, what that means to you and, and kind of what are some of your key points when opening ski runs for the first time? Um, I think the number one thing to think about when you're going on any sort of avalanche slope is to have some sort of a plan as to what to do if it breaks. Um, have an idea of what it's going to do if it breaks. Are you dealing with a six inch wind slab or are you dealing with a six foot deep, very unlikely, but possible deep slab? Um, so that's going to help you choose your terrain. But when you're in that terrain and you're choosing to make a ski cut or choosing to ski defensively, um, you, I think need a plan. So, I'm going to go to the rollover and I'm going to go to that rock and then I'm going to go towards that other rock. And if something happens, I can cut under those rocks and it's probably going to be just fine um, or whatever. Um, I'm going to avoid this part of the slope because it's over a terrain trap and I'm going to go over there. And my safe cut, my safe exit is always to the right. So, you know, it would vary on every slope. So you have a plan. That's the, probably the most important part of defensive skiing or you know, thoughtful skiing and avalanche terrain, um, having that plan and executing it. And, you know, you have a, uh, that's, that's, nut, that's it in a nutshell, I think. Um, maybe having, having your backup in place too, right? Sure. Like, having your backup in place as a heli ski guide. Yep. Absolutely. I, I was thinking, uh, in all the f facets. Yeah. You'd always have your backup set. So even if you're being a ski tour guide and you have your people be like, Hey guys, stop taking pictures. You know, and hope, if you had that group, hopefully you wouldn't be skiing in too much avalanche terrain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and your, your people would already be prepared to watch you as you're starting to ski. But, you know, tell everybody, hey, okay, um, I'm going to ski from here to there. And then I'm going to call you on the radio. Or I'm going to ski from here all the way down to there. And then I'm going to give you a big wave. And you just come down to me one at a time. Um, and just have, a, have that plan and communicate it to your backup. Whether it's a... A quick heli ski. Hey, I'm going to go. Can I get eyes on for this little piece? I, I just need you to look at me for 10 seconds. 
Um, and then the helicopter turns that way for a second. You're like, okay, I'm good. See you later. Um, or talking with your route partner, ski patrolling, um, via radio. And I'm going to, you know exactly where I'm going because we've done this route a hundred times before. I'm going to go down underneath there. Uh, and then I'm going to call on you, call you on the radio. Um, and maybe you don't even see him for the whole thing. Not the best, but that's how you might do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so that, yeah, get your backup in place would be a big part of it. Um, and then go through that plan and, um, knowing what a safe point is, as part of the plan, I suppose, you know, and the safe points would vary depending on your avalanche problem. Um, as would your whole plan, you know, if it's a six inch deep wind slab, um, and there's like cliffy terrain below or something, um, and you chose to ski that for some reason, um, you would maybe decide to dig in instead of trying to ski off it or get fancy and just know that you only have that little shallow thing to deal with and you could just arrest and make it, make that happen. Um, and it would, it's, it's a split second decision. You know, you, you really, once something cracks open, you would really only, you really only have a second to, to react and do whatever you're going to do in that one second, everything happens. Um, so you decide to, oh, I can get to that rock really quick and ski it over there or, oh, I better dig in really quick. Um, so that's part of the plan. Do you think it's appropriate for recreational skiers to ski cut in the backcountry? That's a good question. I've thought about it a lot. Um, I've thought about trying to educate people on these techniques and I'm not sure what the right thing to do is because um, you have to be pretty experienced at it. Um, but it's a really good skill to have. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're going to go into that sort of terrain, if you're going to ski an avalanche terrain, is it better to know how to approach a slope or is it better to just know how to dig a pit and and other things that traditional avalanche classes teach you um it is it better to have those skills and not the other because you might choose to ski cut something or do something that's inappropriate someday i don't know i don't know what actually saved more lives you know and i i i I am interested in it, though. I'm interested in sharing that knowledge because I think it could be helpful sometimes, especially with people, especially if people are going to ski in avalanche terrain a lot and they choose to do that. It's probably good to have some skills or, you know, just some knowledge that people have. And it's real lay knowledge. It's not, there's no textbooks about it, really. Um, that I know of anyway. Um, I certainly didn't learn it from a textbook. Yeah. It's kind of two different contexts there, right? Like, you know, at least most avalanche education I think is, is probably preaching towards avoidance. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and we're talking towards more engagement. And one, one application that I think of a lot is you can gain a lot of information when you're out recreationally skiing, through um, ski cut, ski cutting small test slopes, right? Small inconsequential test slopes. It's going to give you a lot of information about the snowpack and perhaps like sharpen your skills into the techniques of ski cutting, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a that's how I get worked into it. Mm-hmm. You know, 
I didn't just get set loose on the big slope. I didn't get cut, sent out to the north face of Alyeska and say, hey, here you go. No, I learned on tiny little knolls and um, got caught more than once. <laughs> and uh, um, But on smaller spots, mm-hmm. you know, tiny little spots with lots of guidance. And um, then, you know, worked into bigger and bigger stuff. And I suppose that's a way you could do it to teach the, the recreational skier about it. Um, but it's, it's a, it's quite a long process. I think, I think you'd really need to spend some time at it before you really started messing with big terrain. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mike, how do you feel like your risk tolerance has changed throughout your career and, and why, why might that have happened? Hmm. My risk tolerance at the beginning was, I didn't know anything, so I didn't know that I was even taking any, taking any risks. Um, thinking back, I definitely think of a couple of times where I was taking huge risks and had no idea. Um, so that's like pre-knowledge. Then I would say that my risk tolerance definitely, I noticed my risk tolerance the most in ski guiding. I noticed it more, most, I noticed my risk tolerance or intolerance um, most when I was leading other guides or creating a forecast for when I first started forecasting as well. Um, I think my risk tolerance dropped a bit. Um, it generally drops after any sort of close call too. Um but I noticed it most once I started leading other people and being kind of in charge of other people. I noticed it went down a bit. Um, and I think it was just it's something about my nature. I don't know exactly why. But uh, um, also, anytime there's a close call, I think you dial it back a little bit. I think that over time, I've got, gotten a little less tolerant of risk. But 16 or so years of heli-ski guiding, it's... It's not significantly less than when I started, mm-hmm. I would say. You have a couple of young kids. Did you feel like you took a step back in, in your tolerance uh, I, after becoming a father? Yes. Uh, I certainly have less tolerance for trying things multiple times um, and like pushing too hard. Um, I think I still accept a fair amount of risk, but when things become difficult, when there's extra stresses in a day, it's easier for me to just dial it back or quit. I think I just have decided to take fewer of the same level of risks, you know, Mm -hmm. type of risks, you know, not, not that I've dialed back, um, you know, the risky things that I do like ski cutting or skiing in big terrain or getting in a helicopter. Um, I've just decided to take a few less of those when it, when it's more difficult to make those ones. Yeah. Just, just a few less. Yeah. That makes sense. If you had one piece of advice to give your 20 year old self, what would it be? That's a good one. Yeah. What would I do? What would I, there's, there's, I guess a a few things are coming to mind. Um, Buy some real estate right now (laughs) um uh do more things 
And I did a lot of things. I did a whole bunch of things, but do more things. Do more crazy fun things. Why not? Um, and I, yeah, certainly feel like I've done a lot, but sure, do do more. Um, have more confidence in yourself, I think. 20-year-olds are smart. Those are some of the things. Right on. <laughs> How about a, a notable lesson delivered throughout your career that, that has kind of been a watershed moment that changed the way you did things or really impacted you? could be a close call or just a conversation with a mentor. Um, well, when you started talking about that, the one thing came to mind, so I'll just talk about that. Um, had a, it was close call. Um, it was getting an opportunity to get out right after a storm. It, it was a midday clearing, as I remember. And, um, and we, it was, I think the people's last day in town, you know, and they wanted to get them out. And, um, had a persistent week layer, had some surface war kicking around and, um, went to what was, you know, knew we were going to go to some like pretty benign terrain, little small, little rolls that had every one of them had less than a hundred vert. You know, if you do the line, right, everything had less than a hundred vert. Um, and so you could piece all that together. And if you triggered something on the surface or it would be small and, the wind was pushing us around. The wind gets me. It wasn't, it was just on the ridge. It wasn't really loading the slope. The snow was like good snow. It wasn't getting uh, pressed or anything, but it was, uh, it was definitely some wind on the ridge. And so we could, the, 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 it's difficult to find good landings in there, but there's a, there's a number of possible landings. And so uh, I just kind of, let the pilot choose one and uh, that worked best for the wind and, and uh, what was going on with the aviation. And we got put in a spot that um, led pretty easily into a little bit bigger slope, actually a fair bit bigger slope. And um, the people I had had some difficulty traveling um, just a little bit, you know, like benchy terrain was difficult in this train's benchy. And a more difficult benchier alternative would have been off to uh, skiers right or riders right. Uh, in this case, these guys are all snowboarders, and um, and so it would have been a difficult one. But it would have all been on little pieces of terrain, and the 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 bigger slope. Um, it had much more easy travel. And so from that landing, I was like, eh, we'll go over and just take a look at it, you know, got out, traversed over to it and uh, just kind of, kind of a bad feeling. It's like, this is, this is actually a pretty big piece of terrain. It looks small, you know, from the helicopter and it looks small from, you know, when you're a little ways away, but this is like, we're actually, I'm actually entering avalanche terrain right now um, of a, of a more significant nature. And, uh, just went, decided to go for it. Just like, I'm going to have to hike these guys out um, or in pretty, you know, in fairly deep snow um, or 
just kind of squeak this line a little bit and uh, chose to do chose to do that. And I thought, oh, I can just kind of, it's it'll be pretty good. And um, another group followed me in. We got through. Another group followed me in. And the, it was just two group, two, it was two, it was like one group in two groups, um, two heli groups. And the second group, one of the last riders um, ended up triggering a surface or avalanche on the bigger slope and definitely got rolling, caught somebody. They pulled their airbag and they ended up being on the surface. But for a minute, probably, nobody knew for sure because he wasn't visible to any guides. Um, and the other guide was down below and I was close to the heli. So I staged my client, said, you guys stay right here. Went down, got the rotor spinning and uh, went back up and saw him. And it was, everything was okay at that point, you know, it was not good, but, but no digging, no nothing. Um, and so that was a, that was definitely a lesson learned in my own psychology, you know, believe your gut one time out of 10, it's probably right. And if it's consequential, that matters. One time out of 10 is not good odds. If you're betting against that and then something consequential could happen, you wouldn't drive to your local grocery store very often. If that was the problem, you know, if you do if something you do often at all, um, so to listen to your gut was the biggest lesson that I got. Um, don't trust persistent weak layers. Um, first day after a storm is inevitably the the worst. The second day is pretty bad too. Those are the, those are the big ones. So it's pretty easy to kind of get yourself painted into a corner like that, especially when travel's difficult, mm-hmm. client. You know, client management is tough sometimes after a bunch of snow, right? Yep. Yeah, client management is the name of the game guiding, you know, I think, and and not succumbing to operational pressures such as where you can land um, or how hard it will be to hike out mm-hmm. or or even just the saving face part of hiking out. That's the one. Uh, it's like, oh, I screwed up. And I'm going to have to think about it for half an hour while you guys are following me out this boot pack complaining about it. Right. You know, saving face. You can't, can't care about that. Yeah. It's hard. Mike, how about a a tip of the hat to some, some other mentors that have had a big impact on your career? Hmm. Jim Kennedy came to mind. Um, He was uh, the person who taught me how to ski cut. Yep. Um, Snow safety director at Alaska when I came on at mm-hmm. Alaska. Um, he he was definitely the person who taught me how to ski cut. He took me out, showed me my first ski cut, let me get tossed around and learn things for a year, and then took me out and uh, taught me how to ski cut on the North Face for real. Um, and uh, gave me a lot of rope. Um, I didn't hang myself, thankfully. Um, and... Uh, yeah, was a good teacher. Yep, in that in that res- respect for sure. Um, oh, geez, so many. Um, my mom, 
for giving me the freedom to do whatever I want to do as long as I'm happy. Dave Hammer, he's always been ready to offer a hand at any moment. Um, he's the founder of Chugach Powder Guides, uh, certainly. Uh, his partner in crime, Dave Marshall, um, they started it together. Uh, certainly uh, was always ready to share some knowledge about the deeper knowledge of CPG and stuff like that. Um, all the all the ski patrollers I ever worked with definitely had something to share. You know, it's a broad spectrum of people who have a lot of knowledge and the I've had the good fortune to work in some pretty open organizations that are willing to talk about things, you know. And uh, so all the ski patrollers that I've ever worked with, for sure. Nice. Talk a little bit more about Sundog Ski Guides. How did that come about? And what do you guys offer? And how can people find out more about that? Sure. Um, a couple of years ago, I found out that there was a new application period for guiding opportunities on the Chugach National Forest. And I've always wanted to be a ski tour guide, and it seemed like a good opportunity, good time. Um, and uh, so I just went for it. Um, it was a good opportunity, good time in my life to do it. Um, and um, just kind of went for it. Uh, so, so I was formed, went through a whole bunch of different names, came up with Sundog Ski Guides, because um, I really like Sundogs. They're awesome. They're the sign of the next storm system coming in to give you the refresh. Um, or sometimes they're just this beautiful ice fog in the atmosphere. Um, and it just gives you a rainbow for a day. So they're, they're super fun. Anyway, came up with Sundog Ski Guides. And we offer ski tour guiding um, generally around Girdwood and Hatcher Pass. Um, so Turnigan Pass, Summit Lake. Uh, hope to get some stuff out in Prince William Sound someday, and we'll jump through whatever sort of hoop we have to to, to get out there. I uh, would love that in special place. Um, up in Hatcher Pass as well, um, we're permitted to operate on a bunch of different parcels of state land and all over the state. Um, but I think the core area uh, would be from Girdwood Valley through Summit Lake. That's where we'll probably take most of the folks. Really, it's stacked with all sorts of good ski touring. From mellow trees to super duper giant giant runs, big as as big as any hilly run I've ever done. You know, there's some big stuff out there. We offer multi days. Uh, we hope to, in the future, get some aircraft involved. Working on that for the insurance. We'll see whether we have it for next year. But would very much like to offer fly out trips. Um, maybe even fly out day trips. Potentially, I think there's potential to put that together, um, but uh, fly out camping too someday. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, it seems like a, a super attractive offer to people coming up here and do a couple of days of heli skiing and a couple of days of ski touring around here. It's a pretty pretty sweet combination. Yeah, absolutely. Ski touring's you know terrific for a lot of reasons, but um, one of the neatest things about ski touring is it's really simple. You can do it every day. And uh, so it would make a good option for backup for heli skiing. And um, yeah, it's just super simple. You just can go every day, pretty much. Every day you can drive on the road. Even a day that you can't drive on the road, you could figure out somewhere to go skiing in Girdwood, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. 
And people could find out more through your website. You got it. Uh, yeah, sundogskiguides.com. Yep, sundogskiguides at gmail.com, email address. But uh, yeah, sundogskiguides.com. Had a really wonderful person uh, help put together a, a website for us. And it's, yeah, we're proud of it. It's great. Cool. Yep. Check it out, folks. Mike, any other topics that kind of have your gears turning these days? Hmm. What keeps you up at night when you think about snow and avalanches? What keeps me up at night? Uh, my kids getting into avalanche terrain. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you guys might hear this someday, years and years down the road. Um, yeah, it certainly uh, has me. That That's a huge focus in my life right now and probably always will be forever now. But uh, thinking about avalanche terrain and thinking about my kids getting into avalanche terrain and wanting to ski the big stuff that I like to ski too is terrifying. Mm-hmm. But it's also a joy that I want them to have. So it's, I'm balancing those two things, you know, right now I'm definitely on the more terrified side of things that probably always will be, but at some point they'll be really capable humans that have made, have wonderful decision-making skills with any luck. So, um, I wanted to get the joy of that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they'll, they'll learn a lot from you along the way too. With any luck. Some good, some bad. (laughs) Uh, But we'll have a good time. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time and and coming on the podcast today. And I also enjoy being out in the mountains with you. I've learned a lot from you. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks a bunch. Thanks for having me on. It's interesting. It's fun talking about snow. Yeah, for sure. Killer. All right, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Music on today's episode was River Rhythm and Unknown Causes by Ketza. To hear more of their tracks, you can check them out at ketza.uk. Artwork for the show is created by Mike T. You demand Mike. Check out more of his work at MikeT.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-A.com. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. You can find us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and see some accompanying pictures from the interviews there. If you've been enjoying the show for a while now, please tell a friend about it. Have your friend tell a friend. We're on the Tell a Friend program. If you've been enjoying the show, I want you to do three things for me. Please go to whatever podcast platform you listen to this on and subscribe to it there. If that platform doesn't have a place for you to rate and review the podcast, then head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. It's super helpful to get these reviews and ratings. The ratings is just a five-star rating, and I'm not saying that you have to give me five stars. If you think I deserve one star, give me one star that's fine but then go ahead and give me a review i'd really be excited to get some more reviews on the show so if you're a dedicated listener and you haven't taken the time to review the show go to apple podcasts leave me a review send me an email to the avalanche hour podcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think i can do better i'm all ears until next time stay tuned stay safe and keep having fun out there Cheers.